Heavenly Father, we pray that as we look at this passage, you will cause us to be set on fire, as Isaiah talks about it, to bubble like boiling water, as Isaiah puts it. Please would you help us to know your presence among us and to be changed and transformed by it. Amen. So some things in life cause enormously strong reactions. And uh, we can do it right now to find out how you stand on the vexed topic of Marmite. There is no neutral position on Marmite. Nobody, maybe, maybe not. So who's in the pro-Marmite camp? I'm pro-Marmite. Who's in the never again? What is that? There we go, you see? So that's how we get. Now, Marmite lovers, Marmite have played with our minds. Have you seen this? They have now produced truffle-flavored Marmite. So, Marmite lovers only, yes to truffle-flavored Marmite? No to truffle-flavored Marmite? Yeah, why mess with perfection? Good, good, good point. That's it. Strong reactions to some things. Other things are strong reactions, but for other people are just, nah. I had an example of that a couple of weeks ago. Uh, there was a, a conference for all the clergy uh, in the area. Terribly as exciting as it sounds, really. Uh, we all went off to Liverpool. Um, so Mark and I were there, and we had a free afternoon. Now, Mark's idea of a delightful afternoon was to go round Anfield. My idea of a delightful afternoon was to go round an art gallery. We each look at the other with blank incomprehension. Neither of us gets what is possibly exciting about the other person's thing. But still, I will grant you that there are some people who get excited about football. I'll allow that. It's not me, but I'll allow that. It's really worrying, isn't it, when there are some things which are around which ought to be exciting and ought to be vibrant, but nobody is remotely interested. You know what will happen to those things. They just die. And one of the things that I find hard in our culture is that people are saying that about church. Churches across our country, across the West, generally. It's not that people are saying spiritual things don't matter. Spiritual things really do matter. People are asking spiritual questions. It's just they're not finding spiritual answers in church. And they're looking elsewhere. I mean, no disrespect when people are, fine, uh, are looking for their spiritual answers in, in yoga or mindfulness or all those sorts of things. Because they have fat looked at churches and said, ah, no, not so much. And I have to tell you, and again, forgive me if, the, if, if you're, uh, you're here today and you're watching this and you're finding those fruitful. I have to say to you as a Christian, it appalls me that people turn away from the living, risen Lord Jesus, who is the most fascinating, extraordinary person in the universe, and find him boring and go somewhere else. And yet, it happens. So as Christians, we have to say, why does that happen? And what can we do to make a difference? And this is 
part of what Isaiah chapter 64 is going to be talking about. So if you've closed your Bible, grab it open, 752 is the page number. You might find it easier to have the thing open in front of you as a whole rather than just individual sentences on the screen. So we have, over the past few months, been working our way through Isaiah, not verse by verse. We haven't managed that, but we've done it, done it chunk by chunk. And here we are in these last few chapters at the climax. Isaiah is not winding down. He is winding up and he is pulling all sorts of things together. What he is doing is rich and full and dazzling and all the themes that he's dealt with are coming together in one place. So we have seen Israel disobeying God with warnings of, being, of going into exile, of Isaiah promise, prophesying what it's going to be like for them in Babylon, but also a promise of return. We've seen that. We've seen this amazing figure, the servant, pop up. And sometimes the servant has been just code for Israel. Sometimes it's been somebody else who's done something for Israel. Because actually Israel rejects the servant. Sometimes Israel is to be distinct and different and not like the other nations at all. And sometimes Israel is to be typical. It's a model of what God is going to do with the rest of the world. It's dazzling. It's difficult, but it's wonderful. It's, it's a little bit like this. Now, forgive me if I give you something that, that I like, and then I'll give you something that you might like. I like classical music. There is a piece by Benjamin Britten called The Young Person's Guide to the Orchestra. If you've got kids, you may have walked kids through it. And it goes like this, for those of you who don't know it. Um, you've got an orchestra playing some music, but you've got uh, a narrator. These days, it's normally a, a TV presenter who sort of does the narration in between. And it starts out with a magnificent piece of music uh, from, uh, I think it's Purcell, a wonderful, simple, strong theme. And the narrator says, this is what you should be listening out for. And then, over the next 15 minutes or so, the narrator walks you through different parts of the orchestra. Uh, the, the trumpets, the oboes, the woodwind, the percussion, all those sorts of things. He walks you through it and says, now listen to them, listen to what they do. And each time you get, not the grand old theme, you get a very modern piece of music by Britain. And if you know Britain, it's sharply discordant from time to time. It's a little bit strange and wacky, and it sort of builds up, and it layer upon layer, and eventually it cranks up, and it, all this stuff comes together, and it's, it's an extraordinary mess of sound, and then suddenly the original theme reappears, and it all makes sense. It's an extraordinary piece of musical theater, and that's what Isaiah is doing. Suddenly it all makes sense. Okay, classical music isn't your thing. Maybe it's sport. It's that astonishing three minutes when every player on the field uses their gifts in such a way that the, the final goal, the final try is not only astonishing, it's inevitable, but it's wonderful. It's that sense of everything coming together. Or maybe you're into art and you stand back and you look at something like Botticelli's Spring or Picasso's uh, Guernica and you think, there's so much, there's so much going on, but it's somehow all makes sense. Or you're into architecture and you go into St. Paul's Cathedral and you think, there's so many lines, there's so many curves, there's so many arches, but somehow the thing is a whole. Or maybe you're into Scandi Noir 
and those kind of detective stories. And in the last episode, you've got five different storylines, and they're all coming together, and they're conflicting, and then there is finally a resolution that holds it all together. Um, or maybe it's just doing Sunday lunch for 10 people. And 15 minutes before, the kitchen is down, but suddenly it's all there, and you sit down. And it, that is a little bit like the end of Isaiah. Everything's happening all at once, and it looks like absolute chaos, but suddenly it comes to an astonishing end. Now, we're going to look at one chapter, just one chapter, and one of these themes. But we've got to narrow it down. And it is Isaiah's prayer for the renewal, the restoration of the nation. It's Isaiah's prayer for God's people. If you, it, I don't know if you paid attention when Joe was reading, but if you did, you will have spotted that the whole thing, the whole of chapter 64, is addressed to God as a prayer. It's unusual in the book of Isaiah. And it's to do with Israel and Judah and Jerusalem and Babylon. But of course, this is the book of Isaiah, so it's never just about Israel and Judah and Jerusalem and Babylon, is it? Look at chapter 65, just, just over there. Chapter 65, verse 17. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth, even bigger and brighter than the stars we've seen this week. It's that, it's that God has got a hugely ambitious plan going on. So, here's how it works. What he's doing with this group of people, taking them from their land, plunging them to exile into Babylon, and then leading them to return, it's a true thing. It happened in history. But it's also kind of a working model for what God does on a bigger canvas. Think of it this way. If you have taken your kids on the Harry Potter tour. Anybody taken their kids or their grandkids on the Harry Potter tour? No, one, two, oh, this is really sad. Okay, because so, it's not that far away. It's a great day out, especially if they're into the movies. You, you get a tour of the, Harry, of the studios where they filmed it. You get to see all sorts of props, all sorts of things, and the people who love Harry Potter get really excited. And then the climax right at the end is the model of Hogwarts Castle. Huge. It's, it's about half the size of our building. It's a model of Hogwarts Castle. And it's the actual one they use for the filming. So it's a real thing. It's not, it's, not, it's not a fake. Now, here's the thing. Is it a model or is it the real thing? Of course, it's a model. It's a tiny scale model. It's minuscule. You can sort of walk around it. You can see the little light bulbs. And the it's a model of Hogwarts. But it's the, when you see it actually filmed and on the big screen, it is enormous, and it's vast, and it works. This is what Isaiah is like. He's giving us a working model. Uh, it's a real thing. It happened to God's people, exile in Babylon and return. But it plays out on a bigger screen, a bigger canvas, with bigger implications for every human being on the planet. It's a prayer for God to act. It's a prayer for God to bring his people back from Babylon. They are captives, they are helpless, they are spiritual failures, they are wrecks. And Isaiah is saying, Lord, bring us home. Bring us back, renew our hearts, revive us spiritually. You've done it before, so do it again. But it's never just about that. 
2,700 years ago, thereabouts. But the reality is that God can do it again today. That's the pattern. That's what he was doing was Hogwarts. What we're doing is watching it on the big screen. So prayer about sending revival. So that's the theme of what we're going to be looking at this morning. It's how God sends extraordinary life in his church. And if you look at Christian history, time and again, there have been waves, successive waves of life throughout Christian history. And the scholars who look at this say that whenever you do it, whenever you look through Christian history, the patterns in Isaiah 64 erupt time and time again. Not the only ones, but these ones are always here. Now, I'm going to use some unusual words, and I'm not using them in any technical sense, so let me just explain to you what I mean so you can hear me properly, okay? When I talk about an individual person becoming alive to God and kind of glowing with love, I'm going to call that renewal. When that becomes something that catches fire in a church, that's what I mean by revival. And then when it goes from church to church and kind of impacts an area, a city, a country, then I'll call that awakening. Okay? Different people use different things, but for what it's worth, if you hear me, hear me use those words, that's what I mean. Individual, then together, and then across our nation. You may use different terms. Your mileage may vary. All three parts of what Isaiah describes here are things for us. They're inevitable elements in revival and renewal and awakening. So here's the first one. Urgent prayer for God to act. Look with me at verse 1. Here's the first part of his prayer. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. As when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. Can, can you see the urgency? The first word, it's not a normal word in our English language, but the first word is, oh, Oh, that's how deeply he feels it. Uh, I, I can't kind of get this right. So this is a famous Welsh preacher from about 50 years ago, Martin Lloyd-Jones, based in Westminster Chapel in central London. Uh, Lloyd-Jones preached a series which has been published called Revival. And the very last chapter of the book, the very last sermon in his series, was on this chapter. And he says this, on this word, oh, he says, I would remind you, I'm not going to do the accent, he was Welsh, I'm not going to go there. Okay. I would remind you that true praying is always characterized by the use of that word. Oh, oh that thou wouldst rend the heavens. There is no word that is more expressive of longing than that word. It expresses the thirst of deep desire. It is the cry of a person at the end of their resources and waiting and looking for and longing for God. I do not hesitate to assert 
that is the, that it is the ultimate prayer in connection with a revival. Oh. And then we get four really quite dramatic word pictures that God will rip the heavens open and come down, that the mountains will tremble before him at his coming, that the effect would be like a roaring fire, and the impact would be like a, a saucepan of boiling water on that fire. That is, when God turns up, we know, and his enemies know. Now, of course, spoiler alert, we know that that happened when Jesus came down. That was the fulfillment of this passage. But it wasn't finished when Jesus came down. That was only the start. Because time after time after time, God moved in similar and in increasing ways. So here, you've got this dramatic effect when God works in response to answering his people's prayer. And Isaiah says, how do we know that God's going to do this? We know it because he's done it before. Look with me at verse 3. For when you did awesome things that we didn't expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. I, I, that's got to be a reference back to Sinai, hasn't it? When God gave the Ten Commandments. That's when God came down and did this. And Isaiah says, God hasn't changed. He's done it before. And he can do it again. God hasn't changed. Verse 4, since ancient times no one's heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. So he says, well, with hindsight we can say this, God did return his people from exile. But there was a fuller thing that came with the Jesus and his death and his resurrection. And it was fulfilled again on the day of Pentecost. And again when the Samaritans became Christians in the book of Acts. And again when the Gentiles became Christians in the book of Acts. And outside scripture, there's been a continued pulsating move throughout the earliest centuries as the gospel spread to, to India and China and to Africa. In those first few hundred years, that we hear very little about in terms of world history, but the gospel reached those areas first. The conversion of an empire, the conversion of an emperor. And then the, those bright awakenings through history, all through the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages weren't dark at all, they were bright ages, shining with the gospel. And then just when the church looked at its most corrupt, it came alive again in the Reformation, and again in, in with Wesley and with Whitfield, waves of revival, not dying away, but each one seeming to get higher and grander than the one before. That, that's why I'm basically optimistic. What will the next wave of revival look like if it's greater than the ones that have gone before? The conversion of Islam? The conversion of the West? Who knows? And we we say God's done it before, he can do it again. But remember, friends, this inevitable pattern has got a number of different elements in it. This urgent prayer comes always, always, always comes before renewal and revival and awakening. Always. 
So if you like the idea of revival and renewal, if you like the idea of God doing something, if you hope for it, maybe we're just too tepid. Maybe we need to lean into that word, oh, with Isaiah and become more earnest, more urgent with God to come down and to act. But I'll tell you though, even that in place is not enough because there are other necessary elements that need to happen. And here's the second element. Here's the second element. Because Isaiah prayed the prayer and it didn't happen. Here's the second element. It's an awareness of sin. Verse 5, halfway through. But when we continue to sin against your ways, you are angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind our, swins, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. See how it starts? But, Martin Lloyd-Jones preached a whole sermon pretty much on the word oh, I guess he could do it again on the word but, couldn't he? I remember, <laughs> I remember being up there years, years after he died and somebody was speaking from the pulpit that Lloyd-Jones had been speaking on and he said, the last time I was here, Martin Lloyd-Jones was dealing one of, with one of Paul's letters. I think it was the letter T. It's <laughs> You dealt with stuff in small packets. He could easily have done a whole message on that word, but. But. On its own, it changes the direction. It says revival isn't something that we can engineer or manufacture or plan or plot or diarize. It's a spiritual work, and our human sin, Christians, will stop it dead. If we say we're all out for God, but at the same time, internally we're rebelling, at the same time, then we will end up with a show, with an entertainment. But it won't be serious. It won't be spiritually serious. See, if we're on board with Isaiah, we say verse 6. And verse 6 can be one of the most radical verses in the Bible if we get our heads around it because we really don't want it to say what it says. All of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. I don't want it to say that. I want it to say that all my unrighteous acts, all my unrighteous acts are like filthy rags. And I can agree with that. I, I'm very happy if God says that my unrighteous acts are like filthy rags. As long as he also says there are bits of me that are quite okay, really. And he's happy with those bits. It's the unrighteous bit that he's not happy bit. I occasionally mess up and I need God to clean me up. I look after my righteous acts. God will look after my unrighteous acts. Friends, I can hear some of you laughing because you can see how pathetically shallow that is. How thin, how self deceiving friends 
I can't make you see that about yourself if you haven't seen it. I can show you, I can invite you to think. But have you looked in the mirror recently? Have you seen that behind your best actions always lie mixed motives? Behind your best thoughts can be vanity and pride. Have you, have you seen that about yourself when you've looked in the mirror? It's not just our unrighteous acts. It's our righteous, our best, our most noble thoughts are filthy in God's sight. If we haven't got that, we haven't begun to understand the gulf between us and God. There was a famous Archbishop of Canterbury, whom you've never heard of, called Anselm. Anselm lived, what, 900 years ago? Slightly more than that. He wrote, a, he wrote books which are still on sale in paperback. You can, probably, you can get them easily from Amazon. And um, he wrote a book on why Jesus became human and why he died for us. And somebody he knew wrote a rebuttal. They, they wrote an answer. They said, Anselm, you've got this wrong. Jesus didn't come principally to die for us. Our need is not that great. And Anselm wrote a reply. And his one, the one-sentence summary of the whole book, so you don't need to read the whole book, the one-sentence summary is this. My friend, you have not yet considered the holiness of God or the sinfulness of the human heart. You have not yet considered the holiness of God and the sinfulness of the human heart. If you think they can come together so easily, they are poles apart. Only when we see that do we become desperate to be saved. Only then do we say, oh, Only, only if we recognize this, and this is the third element, only if we do this, we throw ourselves on God's mercy for his forgiveness and power. We see God, we see ourselves, and in desperation, we throw ourselves at his feet and say, help. Not, I'll do my best and please cover the rest. Cover all of me, save all of me 100%. Because by myself, I can do nothing. I can't rescue myself any more than a dead person can raise themselves. I can't bring renewal. I can't bring revival. I can't bring awakening. We can't do it by programs or employees or a budget. We can't do it by a brilliant youth and kids program or by getting the right music pastor or by our tech. That will never produce it. It's only ever produced by God's personal presence. And that is only produced when Christians are on their knees, crying out for mercy and crying out for him to break heavens and step down. There have been times when the church was impossibly corrupt. And yet God stepped in with the Reformation and to rescue. England at a time was decadent and corrupt, steeped in alcohol and opium and the slave trade. And it ended when simple Christians like Wesley and Whitfield and Wilberforce and Shaftesbury let the gospel loose. We've seen it before. We'll see it again. Friends, maybe this is why in our day we don't see revival and renewal and awakening in our time. Has God changed? No. There's no other one. Has our need changed? No. It is as clear as ever. Is our skeptical West too difficult for God to reach? No. 
God is still the same, verse 4. Our need is still the same, verse 5. But Isaiah's contemporaries disagreed. They saw no need for urgent prayer or deep confession. And so Jerusalem was torched. They went off into captivity and exile for 70 years. Only then were they desperate enough to turn to God and cry for help. And he brought them home. And maybe that's where we are on this journey in the spiritual West. Maybe we're desperate enough to get on our knees and cry to God for mercy. Maybe we're desperate enough to cry, oh, that you would come down. But maybe ahead of us, still lying ahead of us, is exile and 70 years. Until God brings us home. And he will, because he always does. But are we learning to be de desperate enough? Let's pray. I'm going to leave a moment's silence. You may need to do business with God in your heart. Tell him what you need. Ask him for his mercy and help. Pray to him for your personal renewal. For our church's revival. For awakening to spread across our area, our city, our nation, our culture. Heavenly Father, you've done it before, please do it again. And if we are not desperate enough Please, please would you drive us to the point where we realize that our only but our greatest hope is you alone. We praise you for your grandeur and we confess our prayerlessness and our spiritual sinness. And we pray with Isaiah, we dare to pray with Isaiah, oh that you would rend the heavens and come down the mountains would tremble before you. And as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. Father, would you turn and bring new life to your people?